We're here on IndieLive.radio to the daytime show on Friday, the 30th of October, with Valerie Gold and Marlene Halliday, and we are delighted to welcome our guest, Andrew Murray-Scott. Hello, Andrew. Hello. So we're going to be talking all about your your political um, ideas, but more importantly, about your work. How are you going to do it? Because I believe that you have Ron Cully on as well. I've never actually met Ron Cully, but I know that he wrote the book about William McCree. I remembered that recently, about a month or so, a couple of months ago, I'd been in another Zoom meeting where from all under one banner where Ron Cully had been talking about the William McCree case. So I thought, wouldn't that be brilliant to have both of you on the same show? Yeah, I maybe mentioned to you, but I think when I spoke to you before, he hadn't we hadn't been in contact with him. You know, you're both. I think you know you're both very successfully published authors, eh, and there, there is this kind of tenuous link between your work. But although, mm-hmm. just because of the theme of one of the books, but um, that mm-hmm. you you don't actually know each other. You can mention that. No, that's right. Although, I mean, basically, I remember um, Willie McCree. Um, um, listening to his barnstorming uh, orations at SNP conferences in the 1970s, uh, you yeah. know, he was a really good speaker, uh, uh, very witty, and you know, he he, but he loved to rabble rouse. He was a bit of a rabble rouser. I met him a couple of times um, briefly uh, and spoke to him, but uh, my main connection was through my then council group leader who happened to have been, by sheer coincidence, the second person on the scene of the crash site at Loch Loyne, where Willie McCray was found dying or dead. Oh. Uh, so David Coots, uh, the name, his name, he took me up to the crash site and we went and looked over it and um, you know, he gave me contacts of people who were witnesses and who had been there that day and oh. people who knew him and so on. So as a result, I got drawn into an investigation on, on Willie, Willie's death. Uh, which ended up in my book, Britain's Secret War, which um, I don't know if you can see, uh, horrifying man in a balaclava with a Union Jack burning and all that. Uh, This was a a big bestseller in 1990, and my section on Willie McCray was a section called Death of an Activist, which is quite a big section of the book is that. Um, That was just a few years after he died. I started writing about four years after he died. There had already been a lot of press interest um, so that got into a book. But my friend Ian was compiling a book on what was called Tartan Terrorism at that time. Horrible phrase and, 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 and some, not something, I think we were both uneasy about it because of the subject matter of it. But it was in, in essence a history uh, and a history that had never been told before about people in the nationalist movement from the very early days who had been... Um, you could call them adventurism, you, but it's reckless and, you know, crazy, um, not um, undemocratic kind of things they did. I mean, a lot of things, uh, some of them were bank robbers, some of them were, you know, blew up uh, pylons and all kinds of astonishing things went on. It, it, it was a, we called it Britain's secret war, mm-hmm. because it was, a, it was really, if you added it all up, it was an astonishing um uh, thing. I mean, th- this is what it says, uh, the, in- the inside story of Tartan terrorism in the 70s and 80s. 
Since 1968, there have been approximately 79 bombing incidents, 40 political bank raids and hoaxes and bomb scares. Judges at 18 trials involving 1,095 witnesses have handed out sentences to 52 Scottish terrorists, in inverted commas, yeah. 286 years in jail. The cost of the state has been several million pounds. It's created records of terror trials, uh, the, the longest trial, uh, ever, 1976 was a terror trial, the longest jail sentence for a non-capital offence, 1972, and the most intensive security operation ever seen at Scottish High Court. So, was that was... in Edinburgh, Andrew? This was in Edinburgh, in the High Court in Edinburgh, was it? I'm not quite sure uh, which one it was. The fact is that if you put it all together, but we are talking about 40 years, from nearly 40s to 1982, and very clear at 1982, it kind of finished but 19 it dribbled on a bit more to 1984 but this was a period of history that is finished yeah. and we were always very keen to tell people that at that point this was a piece of history that never been told before but it's finished <laughs> and it only happened because we didn't have democratic means to express our etc so um despite all this that hedging our bets we still got uh, a big a bit of a slagging <laughs> when it came out we were accused of being mi5 agents we were accused of being terror <laughs> um we did everything to try and um, explain that we were trying to to get this out into the public domain before the mm -hmm. daily mail started to do it at every election you know because they could have uh, but it was an astonishing book to write and it's been extraordinarily influential um in its day it's long out of print of course it was pirated on the internet by some far-right groups in the American South, wow. uh, in Texas kind of area. It, it was stolen by a Republican group uh, in Scotland early on, and the whole text has been available on the internet for years. But it, it, it still has influenced, like, for example, Ian Rankin's uh, book, The Impossible Dead, is based on the, the, the Willie McCree um, case. Uh, James Robertson, of course, has used other elements in Britain's Secret War, which he's credited uh, in uh, And the Landley Still. Landley Still, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, James is a friend of mine. Um, I used to know him when he was writing historical fiction, which I think he's really good at. Um, but uh, anyway, I don't want to get into that. Unfortunately, the stuff he took from Britain's Secret War kind of killed his Underlandly still for me, it, it had a huge soggy bit in the middle, which no, that's so funny. My fault, my fault entirely. That's so fun. No, it's not your fault. You, he wrote the book. No, I, I love James Robertson. I see he won a prize the other night, a for special lifetime award at the Yes, yes, yeah, he's a great writer. He's a good writer. Um also, so uh, just just to see what you were saying there, I absolutely adored that book, but the only bit I wasn't too keen on was that section about the MI5 agent. I, I thought it was the weakest section. Can well, that's for exactly what I'm saying to you, Valley, because uh, yeah, I thought it was it, it was basically quite a large section of the book, which is just a three-way conversation between a dupe, an agent provocateur, and a spy handler. And yeah. to me, it was flat. It was two-dimensional, and it didn't. It it, it killed. A lot of the landly still had lots of great threads in it, and and it was very diverse. But that just to me uh, didn't uh, didn't do it any favors. But um, but James is a, a great friend, and he has helped me. He helped me launch my second book. Um, he read with me at a reading um, way back. Uh, my second book, a novel, Estuary Blue, that was about two thousand and one. So 
Can I ask you, before you go on to talk about these books, Andrew, can I ask you um, how you came to start writing in the first place? You know, when, how did that come about? Well, I remember a conversation with my father when I was, uh, my father died when I was 18. Uh, a conversation with my father, he said, it's great that you're, you're literary, that you're always head in a book. Um, uh, Dickens was my big passion at that time. I thought Dickens was great and had virtually all his, I had a huge, I've got his complete set now, but I, when I was a kid, I had uh, a lot of Dickens too. So I wanted to be a writer and I was writing in school magazines and doing all that. And he said, that's great, that's great. You have to do something in the practical, in the real world, you have to do something. So, okay, dad, I'll be a doctor like you. Um, so I got a place in medical school, uh, uh, but then he died uh, just a month before I was due to start medis medicine. So I went up there and just decided, no, this is not for me. Uh, I failed the exams. It was what I now, we now have a delayed grief reaction, of course. But uh, I went away to become a writer, which meant for me getting jobs in hotels as kitchen porters and, hall, you know, night porters, uh, working in bars, working in bakeries, working in factories, working in, you know, you name it, I did it. I did scores and scores of jobs from my late teens uh, to, you know, really all the way up till I was 35 when I went back to university, to university and got a degree. Um, so, but it was all good experience of being a writer. So I've been a writer all my life is the answer to your question. Oh, so you've never, you've um, really early. I've had a very hard apprenticeship long apprenticeship I think I must have been the worst possible writer it could have been when I started out <laughs> although I nearly got a novel accepted by a big publisher in 1984 uh, John Murray nearly took my a novel so but I didn't actually get a novel published until I won the Dundee Book Prize in nine in two in 1999 and that was for Cumulus Cumulus Cumulus, Cumulus. Yeah, Cumulus yeah yeah and Les Lockhead handed me the prize and six grand as well. Fantastic. I promptly gave to an indigenous friend of mine who was rather ungrateful he didn't get more. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm not going into that. A publishing, that got your publishing deal. Yeah, Polygon. Uh, so they also published Estuary Blue as well. And then sadly, they got taken over by Berlin, who already published my first book, first book my first non-fiction book, Bonnie Dundee, which is a biography of Graham of Claverhouse. Mm. Um, and I went on to write, uh, uh, to collect his letters and edit his letters for the Scottish History Society too, which nearly ruined my eyesight. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that you publish under two names, Andrew Scott and Andrew Murray Scott? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Is there a reason for the two? Well, uh, Andrew Scott is, is only the last, uh, the three, he's only the series. Uh, everything else is Andrew Murray Scott. Uh, that, that's my main name. I registered the Scottish Arts, you know, you know with um, writing live literature journal as Andrew Murray Scott that is that's name my name but it's just I'm using the pen name of Andrew Scott for these because because why because it looks because I wanted to make a new start I wanted to put something uh, to do this uh, new genre that I've created called Scottish espionage um, um, and I wanted something snappier on the page and I think Andrew Scott looks at when I started out I was Andy Scott I first published under Andy Scott then I was Andreas McCallopin Gallic version of my name. <laughs> Published short stories under that too. Then I've been A.M. Scott and to my uh, extreme annoyance and my books are usually shelved under M for Murray instead of S for Scott yeah. so yeah. I've had hyphens added as well. Ah, The one thing I don't want in writing is a hyphen. I'm not one of these hyphenated people. 
<laughs> so, well, uh, tell us about um, tell us a little more about you mentioned there genre of Scottish espionage. Yes, this is this is a, an idea because uh, James Robertson and Ian Rankin and others had had written uh, books around about some of the subject matter from our book, book Britain's Secret War, the penny dropped on me and I thought, well, you know, if they can do it, why don't I do that as well? I'd never tried to write in genre at all. I'd always been kind of a literary fiction writer in the sense. Um, uh, but uh, I tried it, and um, after many starts, it became Deadly Secrecy. It was originally in about three different other kind of titles. And then finally, Deadly Secrecy put it out. People liked it. And I thought, this is going to work if I use Scottish landscape uh, places just a bit off the beaten track. I have a good, steady plot, and I have quite a likable protagonist. Uh, and I can say things about Scotland now and Scottish politics. And, you know, I can, I can. Not, 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 not be overtly political, but I, my, the novels will make the reader be in the position of accepting the fact that, that there's a sane Scottish presence, a mindset here that the book is being written from, uh, which welcomes the cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic Scotland we live in now, which welcomes the direction we're moving in towards sovereignty, and and you know which kind of also pokes a finger at some of the horrible. Uh, anachronisms that the, the British establishment has and you know I can, I can really fight the fight <laughs> by at the same time hopefully engage a reader as well. Mm -hmm. And so um, your political views as well we're going to come on to that um, you, you've been a lifelong supporter of Scottish independence then you mentioned earlier that you'd heard Willie McCree mm -hmm. at conference mm -hmm. so you must have been a, a yes, I, I think I joined uh, when I was 16 uh, and I was, I did a lot, I did, I always used to tell my employers, uh, uh, Shona and Joe, that I did uh, all my best canvassing before I was 20, because <laughs> <laughs> I was so enthusiastic uh, in South Angus and uh, Dundee East in those days, um, I was just really and because you're, you know, enthusiastic to do these things, you get good at it. So, um, I, I, Gordon Wilson, obviously, that was why he subsequently asked me to become his constituency assistant when the, what was called the short money became available to the SNP and they could afford to take people on. So I became Gordon Wilson's constituency assistant uh, and also a councillor in the 80s in Dundee after five years in London, I have to say, because I... Like many after the referendum in 1977, uh, 1979, when Thatcher said, no devolution, uh, lots of people left Scotland. I see Marlene nodding, I think, to that. I, think. <laughs> I can see you distantly. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, 1979 was a watershed year. Lots of uh, activists were so fed up at the way things were going that they left Scotland. Uh, and I was one of them. I went and worked in London for five years. Mm -hmm. and, um, nearly got another novel accepted um, there, came very close to doing it, but didn't quite do it. Met lots of famous people um, but, and, and gradually became a journalist so that when I came back, uh, I was on the way to becoming a freelance journalist. Uh, and But then the job for Gordon intervened well, did you work as a press officer? Then? No, not really. I was, I was his constituency assistant. I did everything. Uh, there was, up to that time, he'd had a part-time secretary and she was still there, but I did all the political stuff. So um, uh, a lot of it was. I remember one time um, 
it, it was a great moment for me because Gordon was not uh, very easy to work with. He, he was a very inspiring character and I had a huge respect for him. I thought he was he was marvelous, even, even though I had told him early on that Alex Salmond was a, was a friend of mine, because Alex was quite often in my flat in Dundee in that, those days. He was at St Andrews University at the same time uh, as I was living in Dundee. So um, he, he said, I won't hold that against you. <laughs> but, uh, but Gordon, uh, I remember one time I got a, a great story that I knew was going to make front page story for, for him. And he said, where are you? Where are you? And I said, it's OK. Relax, Gordon. I've done the interviews. I've got the front page for tomorrow's paper. And he was quite impressed with that. So I thought, actually, that's where I'm best at. The constituency stuff dealing with um, people's complaints and so on was something I had to do. And, you know, we were, we were fighting a very tough struggle with um, the Labour Party in Dundee at that time. We were, you know, it was like a Stalinist state. It really was. Uh, and if you were an SNP person, you were your name was you know you were numbered, you were on the list, you didn't get a job. Um, and after Gordon lost the election in '87, uh, I lost my job too. So I couldn't get a job anywhere, even even a menial job in Dundee. So because um, quite often on the board were personnel managers, were Labour councillors, etc. You know, so it was very tightly controlled. Oh yes, very unpleasant in Dundee as well. When when we lost the seat, um, there was a scene where in the Caird Hall after the count where Gordon and his wife Edith and me and a few others had to go past spitting Labour councillors who were practically, you know, it was it was a shocking and disgusting display of the tribalism that went on in Dundee, uh, you know. And Edith would would tell you that uh, she still lives in the ferry, so interesting. But uh, anyway, then subsequently. Um, I, I went, I became a freelance journalist uh, because I couldn't find employment. Um, I met, uh, encountered a lot of kindness from people who helped me and gave me contacts. I did some great things. I did book reviewing for the, uh, the Sunday Herald. I did lots of articles. I mainly worked for the Scotsman, Scotland on Sunday, the Sunday Herald and the Herald really. But I also worked for tabloids and I did shifts for tabloids as it's called. I had a pal who was a great photographer. So it was basically his pictures that we sold, but I sold text as well. And I got paid, it was very well paid, very well paid indeed. Yeah. Is the, the character of these three books, Deadly, Secre Deadly Secrecy, Oblivion's Ghost and Scotch Nation, the main character is a freelance journalist. Yes. So is that character like based, is it semi-autobiographical? Well, it is and it isn't. But actually all my journalist, uh, freelance journalist experience was already used in my previous book, Estuary Blue, right. which was a, a guy called uh, Murray Neal because uh, he's a slimy Murray eel you know he's kind of like he's, uh, anyway uh, uh, the whole thing was I used it there so all my I mean some of my stories I could tell you is quite amazing but anyway <laughs> uh, the, yes the series um, Willie Morton is much more likable than um, than uh, probably some average freelance journalists in the sense he, he, he's had a hard struggle he's 20 years younger than me uh, He's had a good education, a very good education, fee-paying education at George uh, George uh, Harriet's. Uh, is it Harriet's? God, it's George Watson's. Gosh, 
excuse me, I'm forgetting basic facts here. Right. You know, he, he starts out in a small kind of way doing stories of loan sharking. So when he there's a whole career path. If you start off at Deadly Secrecy and read Scotch Nation and Oblivion's Ghost, you'll see his career path. And the next one, which I've just finished finishing the first draft of, uh, you know, he, he goes further. He's actually the Scottish standard newspaper for which he's which he's attached to in all three books, really, for as a freelance. He is now a staff member of the set up an investigations unit and Willie's going to be so he can take on even bigger stories. Uh, and um, that's a delight is that he can develop his career, as it were. Uh, We're kind enough to send me um, copies of the two recent ones and Marlene's already read one, but I'm really enjoying the first one, but I, I, I've got a lot on my plate just now, so mm -hmm. I haven't been had as much time to get to the end as I would like, but we wouldn't want to give folks spoilers anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you a, a little as well, Andrew, about another type of writing? Yeah, I believe that one, one very influential book you wrote was uh, The Making of the Monster. Yes, yes, uh -huh. that's uh, right, I've got it here. Under, Tro is it Trocchi or Trocchi? Yeah, Alexander Trocchi. Yes, uh, I, I mentioned earlier when I was in London, I met um, lots of uh, well-known people and uh, moved around quite diverse kind of uh, kind of groups of people. Um, you know, I was very involved in trade union movement. I worked in the health service down there. I was very involved in trade union movement. Uh, I ended up in the Old Bailey as one of St Mary's 13. When we occupied a hospital, a psychiatric, which would be closed down by the privatisation, was a good bit ahead in yeah. London of what it was in Scotland. So we fought them, ended up in the High Court. We won a moral victory, but we were told to leave the hospital. You know, we went to give up. But anyway, so I knew people on that, Jamaican shop stewards, uh, all kinds of Irish, Irish people who were involved. Lots of, you know, there were something like 17 trade unions in the health service at that time. So I had on, on the one hand, I had that life. On the other hand, I had my literary life and I was trying, I had sold an article to the Scotsman um, about um, uh, the Scottish poetry event at um, the Society of Authors in London. So I, I said, do you have any covering? No. Can I go and cover it? Yes, I think we might go and cover it. So I met people like Ian Crichton-Smith, you know, uh, Kelman, uh, um, who were, they, they were all there, all the big names, and I got to meet them all. And uh, I interviewed, did a nice piece in the Scotsman, got paid. So I was looking for a second piece. And I thought, well, I've heard of this guy, Alex Trocchi, because I'd read Kane's book, uh, which is his, uh, you know, award-winning book um, about a Glaswegian in the New York uh, drug scene, really. But it, it is really, really, it's, it, it always now lists within the top 10 Scottish books ever written. Um, it's such a powerful, Trocchi was a fantastic writer and a Glaswegian, um, a Scottish, uh, um, Italian uh, kind of character. Anyway, so I wanted a second article to follow that. Uh, I'll do an interview with Trocchi. After some trouble, I found him in Kensington and um, he was at the centre of a demi-monde of kind of people who were either famous themselves or the sons and daughters of famous people. For example, Cressida Connolly, the, the daughter of Cyril Connolly. And I was away in, in Venice on a holiday and Trocchi wrote me a letter. Andrew, it's very important, must speak to you. Uh, so he wanted me to move in with his friend, the Honourable George Rodney, whose, whose father was the, 
you know, was a genuine war hero and in the House of Lords and, you know, and so on. So for a while, for a good while, a year and a half, I lived in the centre of Kensington in this posh place with, uh, with the, the son of a lord. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I used to go to parties all over the place with the, the real hoi polloi, you know, and they would say, oh, Andrew, thank you for coming. Well, you've not brought George, have you? Trocky was there. I, he was friendly with me, gave me some tips, discussed my a novel I was writing. Uh, strangely, later there was a fire at his, at his house and all, after he had died and all his belongings and books burned, including my novel. Um, my book on Trocky is probably the biggest book that um, I, I've done so far in the sense of its reach, not its sales. It has, it's not by no, no means the largest selling book I've ever written. But in terms of the influence, I mean, the influence on Scottish writers. Um, like Graham, Welsh and people. Oh, yeah, yeah, but also Louise Welsh, Graham McRae Burnett, um, you know, um, Gordon Legg, Alan Warner. All these people were huge files, and so I became the blue-eyed boy for a while because I was the guy who had known Trocky and who wrote his biography um, uh, after he died in 1984. It was a hard job because he had had an amazing life and it was a life in pieces and to try and put it all together into one book was a very difficult task. I subsequently edited a collection of his writing as well um, which was, a, was released by Polygon at the same time and I finally, to my delight, managed to be able to revise that whole book. And it's still in print now because it's a new edition by Kennedy and Boyd. Because, like I said earlier, there's always loose ends after a book. And I'm looking at the photograph on the cover of the book as we speak. And the making of the monster, that's quite an unusual title. How did that... Well, it comes from it comes from a piece of a scrap of when when I say that his life was chaotic, uh, you know, basically there was a study ankle deep in papers and things, and uh, I made it my task to uh, to collect these and to annotate them and put them in some kind of order and to interest libraries and museums in getting hold of stuff of it. So I I didn't just write a biography of Trocky, I reorganised. Uh, all his material and everything as well. Uh, it was an unpaid task completely. It took years and years of my life and I helped to get all his books reprinted. And uh, I was at the centre of a chalky industry, if, if you know what I mean. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was something I did because I respected him as a writer. I liked him as a mentor. He was a good friend to me. Uh, and and I really do think he is one of Scotland's best writers of the 20th century. And um, and his writing, to my delight, is much more to the public fore than it was before. If somebody was uh, unfamiliar with his work and wanted to begin, what book of Alexander Trockey's would you recommend? This well, the one that everybody's heard of is Adam's, uh, is Young Adam, because that was oh, yeah. a film was made of it. With the Ewan McGregor. Yeah, playing that part. In fact, the studio contacted me uh, when they were coming to do the filming. They wanted to get a, co a copy of my uh, of my my biography, but I didn't want to give them the Polygon book uh, that first appeared because they made so many mistakes. We didn't even have an index in it, and it was in hardback and so on. So um, I I had the script of this, which I I photocopied and I gave them it. They never even invited me to the set, you know, but. I missed, I, missed, I missed a trick. I should have said to them, 
um, uh, when are you uh, when are you on the set? Because I'm coming down. You know, I could have gone down, forced my way in. How are you and how are you doing? <laughs> you know, but I didn't do that. I'm not that kind. I just I'm not I, that kind of person. But the people I met during the writing of Trocky book and so on. I mean, you you know, you name it. Uh, Harry Nelson spoke to on the phone. Tim Leary, uh, William Burrs. I went to interview. You know, Marianne Faithful. You know, well, I've seen I've seen photograph when I was looking, researching a bit into your background. I saw some amazing photographs of you with people like William Burroughs and yeah. when you were in America. I saw some photos. Yeah, I was I was a young lad then. You know, like, I looked haunted and you know, kind of like thin, very thinny. Yeah. But uh, the, the, Terry Southern was was one of the people who I'd interviewed. He had he was a scriptwriter. He was a novelist, uh, but he was also a scriptwriter like Doctor Strangelove and uh, things like that. Uh, he he was just a great guy, and he and I got on superbly when I went to his place, and um, he made me stay for a week. <laughs> I couldn't get out of it. He said, you stay. So did I told him so. Did you have a big trip round, round America? Did you? Yes, yeah. I did a couple of months there. I did I did the Greyhound thing for a month, but I also had, I got an Arts Council grant to go and do it, Scottish Arts Council, so uh, they paid my travel things. So uh, so I did, I eked it out. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't, a massive amount of money, but I ate it out by finding the cheapest places I could possibly stay at and anywhere I went to. Uh, and um, anyway, subsequently, I wrote a short story which was published, um, called uh, which got into an anthology, etc., based on those that kind of trip, you know. But, um, um, Andrew, there was something you touched on earlier about um, the idea of Scottish fiction and feeding into the current. Scottish politics situation. Would you like to expand on that a wee bit? Just say a bit more, because it is really important. I always think that the the power of uh, drama, uh, art, um, you know, writing can have a huge effect on people's political ideas because it's not always with facts and and rational argument that people are convinced. It's often their hearts as well as their minds. I just wondered if you've got any anything more to say on that idea about how Scottish fic fiction can feed into the current uh, Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think, I think, you know, Scottish writing has always been very, very strong. Scottish fiction uh, uh, and so on. And I remember William McIlvanny and people like Alistair Gray, of course, and Jim Kelman, of course. Uh, but uh, it's never been explicitly political. It, it's been uh, part of the resistance from Thatcherism. You know, it, it drove a, it drove a, a huge expansion of Scottish writing and Scottish arts in all ways as a kind of defence mechanism to protect uh -huh. identity. But it has always puzzled me that we do lack um, fiction uh, that in other countries which have national uh, independence movements, um, there have always been writers who are at the foreground, foreground of that with novels. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to happen in Scotland. Um, there's not really, in Ireland, you think of all the writers who were part of the, of the, of the movement. Uh, Brendan Behan, for example, yeah. a very political writer and so on. And there, in Latin America, there's been some incredible books. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking uh, in Kenya, you know, um, I can never pronounce the chap's name, um, but I've got his book sitting there. Uh, whole whole um, novelists have made their careers out of being writers of the national uh, independence movement of their country. Oh, yeah. But Scotland has got a lot of journalism, 
about it and and non-fiction writing but there's a lack bloggers, of bloggers but not so much yeah there's, there's a there's a lack of people who who uh, you know you could say uh, james robertson's book was political in the sense that showed scotland kind of moving maybe in a direction but i feel there should also be a more a more committed kind of writing that uh, considers political process as well and i'm not saying you should write tracks so who wants to write a track nobody would read it but yeah. you, but it, but I think a good thing would be to harness genre. You know, everybody likes crime novels, so let's write a crime novel. But let's make it a crime novel where the reader finds himself subtly worked upon as they read the novel to realise that this is, you know, the potential that is there for moving hearts and minds. I think I mentioned to you off air that um, because uh, we were interviewing you and we knew that one of your books was very much based on the... Um, death of Willie McCrae that we also asked another author so um, Ron Cully who also writes a novel a, a mixture of fact and fiction which is based mm-hmm. based on um, he's got a novel based on that called Alba the death of Willie McCrae so his interview will be going out in the same program mm-hmm. and also recently a couple of weeks ago we also interviewed uh, a writer who, who we have had on the show before, he's called Alan Martin, and he's got two novels and a novella, and then his first novel was called The Pete Dead, set on Isla, and the second one is called The Dead of Jura, amazingly enough, set on Jura, and um, although these are crime fiction, it's about, you know, a crime, there's a huge, there's a heavy heavy political overtones particularly with the second one so I don't know if you're familiar with his work but I would recommend it as well because mm. um and a, I think I think that's a wonderful idea I'm really looking forward to reading your um, there's also another chap who, whom when I started when I took retirement from Shona Robinson and Joe Fitzpatrick and Stuart Hosey's office uh, uh, having done nine years as a press officer with them um I was that's right round about the time when I got started into this whole process of uh, with deadly secrecy and I was looking for a theme and I was looking for something to do with it I didn't want to write sensational kind of stuff because I'm also aware that there is a a subgenre of fiction which was um has been ongoing in fact I wrote an article in the Herald about this uh, some time ago um which uh, everybody's heard of Scotch, uh, Scotch on the Rocks, a Scotch, Scotch on the Rocks novel, which written by a Tory Home Secretary. Uh, well, it's in fact one of only about 20 novels now that exist, uh, many of them written by people you would know. Kirsty Watt's husband, for example, big media figure in Scotland, wrote, wrote a book called Rogue Nation, which uh-huh. was, oh, surprise, surprise, an independent Scotland sliding inevitably into bankruptcy and uh, ruin. Uh, and it's amazing how that theme is such a common theme among people writing this kind of thriller. Um, so I thought, you know, I'm going to have something uh, in similar lines, but I'm going to go the other way around and I'm going to write a novel that doesn't really engage totally with it. it, it I mean, it's nuanced. I don't want to be a total sensational tripe like that what I found was that there is research people um, who are studying the present constitutional situation we're in and there's all kinds of interesting little things you can find for example um, MI5's role in Scotland it's always been a matter of conjecture well MI5 has a Glasgow office um, so 
and and it's the, these academics. Uh, if you pour through their let, let uh, their essays, you find that there are problems there. For example, um, there are now the the, the the problem of two masters. MI5 in in Glasgow uh, is in charge of all security intelligence matters within the whole UK in within Scotland as part of that. Uh, but but police Scotland also uh, have a. a, a control of, of matters to do with national security as well, and Scottish ministers sign them off. So there is this, this interesting ground conflict that you can use to create fiction, and that's partly what uh, Oblivion's Ghost is in. Scotch Nation, different theme there, that's uh, what would they get up to um, in, in, in London if, uh, you know, what, what kind of nasty uh, things are they doing? Because it's quite certain that they have had quite a lot of involvement and in some kind of low intensity way uh, in Scottish politics. That's something we touch on quite a bit in our other interview with Ron mm -hmm. Cully, um, because as you know, you'll know yourself because you're obviously far more knowledgeable about this kind of subject than, than I am, but um, there is huge documented evidence of penetration of political, of perfectly legal political organisations mm -hmm. by um, the state service, the security services, including these cases where people actually formed relationships and had children and, and everything. Yes, that's right. With the hunts, with the, the, the eco warriors. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, well, in Britain's Secret War, way back in 1990, that was the other half of the book. We tried to find out what this penetration had been. We interviewed lots of people who claimed to have been. And of course, I myself, um, when I was 24 in London, my then girlfriend, is 22, shocked me by saying that she had been approached mm -hmm. uh, and um, in a rather roundabout way um, because she was bilingual and so on and so on to become basically a support agent for MI6. Yeah. And that's what she did. And um, she was moved to Geneva. I went there and, and met her and um, she cut me off without that. <laughs> she got rid of me. She'd obviously been told, I think, by her handler or whoever, this chap's possibly, you know, a security risk. We don't want anything to do with him. So that was the end of that Can I ask you, Andrew, just I'm conscious of the time and, you know, I don't want to have you stuck here for with us for too long but I just wondered do, what what would your ideas be on the current situation because the the threat as the we call it the opportunity but the threat to the UK to the union from Scottish independence as, as it is painted in the media is is stronger than ever do you think um there's a good chance that um, the Yes movement and the, the pro-independence parties have been penetrated by the security services. Well, I would be very surprising if they weren't. I mean, what, what else are they doing? Ooh, they're being paid lots of money. What, what do they do for it? Of course they're doing this, this kind of thing. I mean, I remember um, back, at, I mean, I myself um, uh, got uh, contacted by a chap. There's a very strange incident, this altogether. I had a new friend, shall we say, um, as, as a person who was heavily involved in the party in Dundee and also an author and was writing various things, uh, this chap um, appeared and for a while we were friends and he was a law lecturer uh, at a university not a million miles from where I'm sitting now, except he wasn't. Uh, for several weeks I had been chatting with this guy was one of us and he, you know, etc. And we went for drinks and we talked and all that stuff and then he wasn't there anymore and I, and I thought, I wonder what happened to him. So uh, eventually I went back to university and I asked about it in the law department. Nobody had that name here. 
So, how did you figure yeah. it? You know, yeah. everyone's got stories like that. Yeah, and, uh, really. You know, but but at the same time, I don't want to inflate that kind of stuff and make it because there's a you know there's a terrible blight on our planet at the moment called conspiracy theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Trump has a big hand in it, and I don't believe in I don't believe in in kind of um, getting the crazies all worked up. Oh. Um, I, I, I'd like to really stick to more um, observable truths. And there's enough research coming out from genuine bona fide political scientists and, and pundits uh, about the, the problems that the constitutional situation has at the moment. So I'm going to concentrate on those and write intelligent fiction based on these issues, you know. Well, um, I'm sure anyone that's been listening is absolutely dying to read. Just um, if you just remind us again about the names of the three books there uh, that folks should be looking out for. Um, well, Scott's uh, Deadly Secrecy, um, which Leslie Riddick um, uh, praised very highly as a real page turner. She was uh, very good. I mean, she's one of the busiest women in Scotland, and yet she yeah, read. Yeah, very much so. Gave me a, a thing too. Good for her. Uh, Billy Kay read Oblivion's Ghost, um, the third one, and he. Oh, he gave you a fantastic review. Yeah. yeah, they've had great reviews in the papers. I mean, um, the one that can be called riveting reads, etc., by. You know the Courier and the Press and Journal and so on and so forth. And the the, the second one, Scotch Nation, um, is 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 the one with the, the big Big Ben on it and Willie Morton, um, running from Big Ben. Um, the the, the thing about Willie Morton is when it first appeared, uh, it, Willie Morton was a bit bigger than he is now. Uh, people. Uh, said actually the perspective is wrong. So William was shrunk. So it's a smaller Willie than it was originally. Sorry. Careful um, what you're saying. <laughs> yes, well, but uh, William Morton is, uh, is 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 going to be is with me. He's in my head really. I, I can see how he how responds to things. His girlfriend Professor M Emma Emma Emma, Emma McKechnie. I beg your pardon. I'm getting all tongue tied. Uh, he's developed this relation. He starts off as a single guy in Deadly Secrecy. He's divorced, uh, but he meets her in Scotch Nation. She's uh, much closer to him, shall we say, in, Obliv in Oblivion's Coast. And book four, they're actually going to be living together, finally. So, so that's the one that's coming out next. Well, yes. Thank you. I can't tell you the title. It's, that's all right. It's, we'll be looking out for it. That's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, Andrew. Um, so thank you very much indeed. Um, well, thank you for putting up with me. It's not easy. I know that uh, I, I tend to be a bit gregarious. <laughs> I tend to uh, talk an awful lot once I'm given the slightest bit of encouragement. That's exactly what we want, and we, we've loved listening to you talk about you, especially about a lot of the experiences and the demi, the literary demi mountain in London as well. well we're, we're very fortunate that both of you have um, been uh, consented to be interviewed and accepted our invitation, and we're absolutely delighted. Um, and also a big shout out to Dave Rennie, Dr. Dave, who's got a, a Halloween show on a well, by the time this goes out, he will have gone out, but he's got a really good music show here on um, Indie Live Radio. And um, Dave put us in touch with you. So he was uh, he was the DJ at my 60th birthday party. <laughs> well, that was uh, really, really worth a big thanks to Dave. And also... Um, remind folk that his show is on every um every Monday sorry Wednesday evening at nine he does a really great music show and also we will be playing some of your music choices you've given us some amazing music choices here 
uh, which we'll uh, talk about you know on the show later on um thank you very much and uh, we'll say goodbye just now andrew thank you very much thanks very much indeed thank you thank you